When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome. It's episode 7 of the Crash MotoGP podcast with Keith Hewitt, Pete McLaren and myself, Harry Benjamin. And on the show this week, we're looking ahead to this weekend's Grand Prix in Germany as we return to the infamous Saxon ring. Keith's got the lowdown on what to expect. We'll also be giving our predictions for this weekend. Pete's got all the news after the latest in-season test, which took place after the Spanish Grand Prix last time out and a whole lot more coming your way two so guys um we had another test didn't we straight after the catalan grand prix always difficult really to take absolutes from these kind of things i think but a couple of points i wanted to pick up on starting with honda and uh mark marquez who did the most laps of anybody and trying some big changes pete wasn't he so what, what can we sort of learn from that and what was what's he been up to as you say, Harry, the first thing is the number of laps he did. I mean, this is a guy who only did seven laps at the beginning of May when they had the post-race test in Jerez. So this is a, a big increase. The race distance is, is 24 laps. So, I mean, three race distances. In fairness, he said he was destroyed by the end of it. But still, that, that's a, a clear step in his physical strength. So that's, that's going to be a big boost for, for him and Honda in itself. Now, as far as trying things... Yes, that you know, it's no secret that Honda have, have issues. They're very open about it. They're trying to find solutions. Uh, Mark was very interesting after the race when he fell because he said he actually pinpointed the areas, didn't he, where he had the issue. He said, you know, lack of rear grip going into the corners and he's also struggling with acceleration on the exit. Now, that was interesting because it matched a bit with what Cal Crutchlow was telling us last year. He was saying the same sort of problem. And Cal went a step further in that he highlighted the engine inertia. He felt that Honda have come out with this new engine for 2020 with heavier crankshaft to try and sort of tame the power a little bit, make it a bit smoother, and that it was actually causing problems on corner entry. So Marquez didn't sort of go as far as Cal as far in, in pinpointing what it might be, but, you know, it seems to be that, that Mark is now saying similar things to Cal. So, you know, is that the cause of it? Um, if it is, the bad news is the technical freeze means that nothing can be changed for it until uh, the start of next year. So perhaps all of the things that we're seeing Honda try they're really just trying to put a sticking plaster on, on the main issue. We saw a lot of aerodynamics because Honda haven't yet tried their, their, their one available upgrade for this year. They haven't introduced it yet. But the fact they haven't introduced it yet tells you it, where it is on the importance list. If this was the key to all of their problems, they'd have been running it since Qatar. You know, they'd have done that upgrade already. We know they're trying the chassis, these, you know, lots of different chassis, but they are not really seem to be hitting the, the real root cause of the problem. So... If you combine everything that's going on, I think it probably is the engine and they're trying to work around that issue with changes to the chassis, changes to the aerodynamics. Um, but it, it looked like 
you know, Mark said there was a small difference in terms of the trying different fairies and things like that, but certainly no, no massive breakthrough at Honda. I think we can say that. They've been trying to work their way around that engine since they um, introduced it. I don't know how long ago. And since we went to spec electronics, um, they haven't really got a handle on the motor. So I think that that's been an ongoing problem for them. Cal Crutch, though, of course, is a brilliant test rider, a brilliant rider. Uh, the fact he recognised it, you've already said it, they're on a freeze, so they're stuck with that. I think the most significant for me, Harry, is the fact that he did the most mileage. The fact is we're moving in the Saxon ring where he is the Saxon king, of course, king of the ring. Um, he'll be looking to try and... Clearly, his fitness is OK. He wouldn't have done all those laps. OK, he was destroyed at the end of it. But you are as a tester. That's, that's what happens at the end of a test day. It's a, it's, they're, they're horrible. I hate them. I always have done. Round and round and round and round, trying little tiny incremental differences. And 99% of the time, you come back to exactly the same setting you had when you started the day. You've just done a million miles to get back to where you were in the first place because the bike just can't be improved or the improvement is so minute you can hardly feel it. Um, I feel a bit for, for Mark Marquez at the moment. I mean, obviously... The great thing is he will have got a lot more feel for the bike. And, and you mentioned it right in the intro, Harry, that, that when, when we back to back from a race to a test day on the same track, the track hasn't changed that much. The weather was not that much different. So mm. they get a little bit more time to really do that back to back test with what they had the day before. If it had been a week later, two weeks later, then everything could have been different. And therefore it's not as relevant, I don't think, as, as a comparison. So it's a good thing for him. But moving into a track where like I said, he is the king, then um, we'll see if he's going to be king of the ring this weekend. Yeah, well, it, positive signs, isn't it? At least in terms of his uh, his health and able to doing that. It's a sign of progress and, and they say, moving into the Saxon ring. Could be a good bit of momentum for him. Takanakagami as well, the other Honda rider, kept switching between 2020 and 2021 chassis. Does that kind of... Was that useful, Pete? Or was that a bit... Does that sort of highlight the, how they're in a bit of no no man's land? Again, I think it highlights that then, you know, they're trying to work around the main issue. Yeah. Um, you know, when this tech freeze was agreed, the tech freeze covers the engines mainly and, and also a bit of the aerodynamics. But they can do one upgrade for the aerodynamics this year. But the engine they can't touch from the start of 2020 until the first race of 22. Can they go backwards with aerodynamics? I think they can use what they've used already, can't they? Yes, what... they're allowed no, one I... addition. Yeah, I think they're... Yes. they're, they're... Yeah, I think they can go back to what they've used before. And I think that's what we've seen on, on some people when they've been testing. They've gone back to 2018 right. stuff as well. So, I mean, they're just fiddling around. You know, like you said, the sticking plaster analogy was a good one. I think that Honda mm. have, have got that problem. Problem being, with the lack of testing that we're going to have at the end of the year, we don't test like we used to. We don't have the, you know, we don't send out the test team and they're doing a million miles anymore. And the main guys can't do the mileage that they've done in the past. So we've got this situation when we get to the end of 2021, yeah, it's all very well saying 2022 is a new year and we're free to test whatever we want or we're free to bring our upgrades to 2022. They might not be any bloody good. <laughs> and that would be a nightmare. I mean, yeah, well, we'll have to, uh, we'll keep watching that one uh, with Hawkeyes as we, as we will. Let's switch over to um, KTM, who everyone seems, of course, to be talking about for a very good reason. But before we get to the factory boys, over at Tech 3, where we know at least one of Petrucci or Laquona, uh, or both, will be off at the end of the season. Both seemed encouraged, actually, after trying out some changes, Petrucci trying a new chassis. But again, it comes under the whole uh, the, the whole freezing, doesn't it? Because they can't make any fairing changes until 2022. Well, KTM are in a, I mean, they're, they're just, I think what KTM have done is the kitchen sink syndrome, isn't it? They chucked everything at it. They've, they've, they've really, really, they've got a long line of talented riders. So if you, if one of them is underperforming, you know, eventually they can pop another one in. 
I mean, they're in a fantastic position. There's nothing quite like a tubular frame either. Cut a bit of frame out and put another bit in it. You can you can fiddle with a frame a lot more than you can with a great big aluminium extrusion like the, all the other things are made out of. So I think KGM are in a, just a fantastic position. Oliveira, anybody had any money on him winning last weekend? Uh, must have made some good odds as far as that was concerned. And I think... This new fuel, I still can't get to the bottom of fuel. It's obviously got to hit all the chemical markers. It's not something that you can't just bring some rocket fuel in and fire up your KTM with, with something that's a bit special juice-wise. It's got to hit the chemical markers that, that are set down in the rules. Um, but it's obviously enabled them to do something fueling-wise with their with their motor that, that, that they wanted to do. So um, moving away from Elf to, to the new supplier has, has obviously been a benefit to them as well as the chassis changes. And I think KTM, when you think about it, the pipeline of modifications that they must have must stretch from here to Austria um, in the, that they seem to always have some new innovation popped in. When they dumped the, as I said last time we were talking about this, they, they dumped the Moto2 program, brought all the people in, took all their expertise to try and make this... Uh, bike work well and it and it is it's it's working brilliantly well i mean i was a bit disappointed with binder i've got to say last time out although um you know he's he's there or thereabouts still but I, I expected a bit more from him but whatever the circumstances ktm have it covered you know whatever track we're on we, they have a rider of the day almost don't they? a rider de jour i think am i right in saying that the the tech three ktm though they they're not using this, this same magical fuel as as the factory guys is that right well, that's Not what you do yet. in development. That's what you do in development. You you split your strategies. You know right. you, that, that's the the clever thing again. I mean, this is why I mean, Ducati are going to have what eight bikes on the grid next year. You know that kind of development. You can't beat data when we're in the in especially if we if we're going to be short on test days at the end of the season. If we've not got a lot of testing going on, to have it spread out over different teams over eight different bikes, mate, that's a big deal. Well, they talk about, you know, chucking the kitchen sink at it as well. They, uh, Oliveira and Binder, both trying out, uh, well, they were very tight-lipped about it, weren't they? But this 2022 prototype bike, Pete, currently being developed by Danny Pedrosa. But they, they didn't want to say a lot on it, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. I mean, I, I asked both of them straight up, you know, about this bike, because we can see it on the timing screens. It was actually registered as a different bike. So it was pretty obvious it was something completely different. Um but yeah, they, they gave the classic answer that, that we all dread, which is there were some positives and some negatives, you know, and um, yeah, they really didn't want to give anything away. Oliveira did say that, that he thought the Catalonia track wasn't the best one for, for sort of deciding or evaluating on major changes like a chassis and swing arm, which kind of implies that that's what, that's what that new bike has got, is changes in those areas. Um, we also see pictures, they were trying quite a radical fairing. Um, now, as you mentioned previously, that can't be used this year because unlike Honda, KTM have used their one upgrade for this year already. That's why Petrucci's in difficulty because he can't get another fairing made. He's going to have to wait for next year. But um, yeah, this new fairing had drilled holes in the front and sort of these, these mid middle wings by the rider's knees and, and ankles, but quite small wings. So I don't think they were really for downforce, probably just to tidy the airflow a bit. But well, drilled holes, almost like we see at Phillip Island for the crosswinds. So whether it was something to do with to help this turbulence issue that some riders talk about with the wings when they're cornering, who knows? But it was quite unusual. And you can bet that all the other factories are now doing mock-ups of that fairing to try and work out exactly what they're doing and if it's something they should look at. You touched on the Danny Pedrosa thing, and I think that's important as well. I mean, Danny Pedrosa, mm -hmm. you know, you had to say that when they signed him as a test rider, I thought, does that make any sense to me? You've got a guy that, that, that you know, 
I had this story. We were all stood in, you know, as you do, in the zigzag line at the, the airport, waiting for passport control in whichever country we were all in at the time. And, and Danny leant back, and one of those things where they they pull the, the kind of zip wire out the side of it to keep you in line. He leant on that, and the thing tilted. And when it came back, it nearly knocked him into next week. That's how light he is. You know, the, the, I always question the, the sense in having someone that was so small and so delicate and, and, and of a stature that didn't seem to really suit the way that some of the guys were going. His testing, I wondered whether would would take them in the wrong direction. But clearly, he and Mike Leitner, Mike Leitner, they've worked with the Austrian for a long time. I mean, he was his reptile uh, crew chief at Honda for, for a while. So they know each other really, really well. So those two together have really come up. I mean, you know, just to a man in, in, in KTM, they, they pretty much praise the way that Danny has brought that motorcycle on. I don't know whether you had any doubts in your mind, Peter, uh, regarding whether that was going to work for them when when the signing was done. But I must must say that it seemed at the time, now, is Danny aggressive enough on a bike? That was another problem that we had. He, he couldn't get any heat in front tyres, was, was the old uh, conversation that we had. You know, all the things that you... You, you, you would have thought that you didn't need Danny Ed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's a super talent on a motorbike. So, and, and he's obviously a clever little fella as well. So he's, he's got it worked out. But hasn't it worked well for them? It, it has. And as you say, there were definitely doubts. You know, people were saying because of his unique size, if you like, you'll end up building a unique bike that, that fits him and not other people. But I think exactly as you're saying, Keith, that relationship with Mike Leitner, Mike, I think, knew that because of his size, he can't muscle the bike. He needs the bike to do the work for him more than the other riders. And so I think that's why Mike thought he's going to make a great test rider because he's going to make the bike easier for everyone in that regard. And, you know, we, we weren't obviously privy to that relationship, that, that information. But I think Mike knew, hang on, this is why he's going to be good at this. And it seems to be what we've seen. that The bike was, you know, Polar Spargo always had an aggressive style, but it, it was a bike that liked to be wrestled with, wasn't it, in the early days? And it looked like quite a beast. You know, they called it the bull, didn't they? Even without yeah, Zarko, Zarko could get out the front, he couldn't get the front to stick to the floor, could he? Zarko <laughs> bailed out halfway through the year. He just he couldn't make it work. And all the things that really that Danny used to complain about with the Honda until about you know he couldn't get that heat in the front, couldn't get the front working right. Maybe the fact is that he's made that work right now is why riders are benefiting from it so much, as you say, Peter. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think we all used to dread the Danny Pedrosa end of day <laughs> debrief where. He'd had tires where he couldn't, he just couldn't get them in the operating temperature. He had absolutely no chance. And I mean, it was, you know, he never hid his his disappointment, did he, Danny Pedroza? I mean, he wouldn't sugarcoat things. So he'd be there going, look, I can't get the tires within whatever it is, 20 degrees of their operating temperature. So what can I do? You know, and they tried everything to make it work. But it's just too light. And so you, you did sort of worry about that. But as you say, if you can find solutions to that and you can make that work for everyone, Everyone benefits, and that seems to be what, what we're happening, what's happening with the KTM. It seems like a much smoother bike, much as Ducati tamed their bike and, and, and made it sort of more rideable. Well, I wonder uh, who's going to have their money on a KTM win again uh, this weekend. We shall see after all of that. Um, Mr. Valentino Rossi uh, now improved performance overall from the last Grand Prix, although it ended in tears, of course. He said uh, from testing, their key emphasis was on traction and acceleration, and he's feeling better about it because that is what has been absolutely uh, his Achilles heel so far. Some new tyres as well from Michelin. Uh, how are we looking at Rossi? Do we think now that perhaps he can kickstart into gear? And actually, I saw a very funny interview. I think it might have been on, it probably was on Crash, where um, that would be a professional thing to say, wouldn't it? Uh, where it was on Crash, I read it. And uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think it was his mum said if he was leaving, um, he wouldn't. He, if he was going to quit this year. There's no way he quit halfway. And I think the first people to know about it would be his local paper from his local village. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I don't think he's going to quit, quit halfway through the year, that's for sure. Yeah. But I'd, I'd still I'd still bet a reasonable, sizable bet that, that there'll be an announcement about next year soon enough. I mean, mm. and the things he's saying, to be to be honest with you, you would say, wouldn't you? You know, he's in that situation. You, you, you have to have a slightly positive spin on it, even if it's still a nightmare. Traction, it's been a problem for him for a while. Yeah. I've got nothing else to say about Valentino. I, I, I hope he manages to find a solution this year to what's going on and he can go out at the end of the year with a, with a bang, one way or another. I mean, I, I, I just wish the bloke well. He's given us everything mm. hugely for a, such a long period of time. I don't want to see him suffering. Nobody wants to see him suffering the way he is at the moment. Whether he manages to get a solution out of it by the end of the year, who knows? But um, battling to be in the top 10 is not where we expect Valentino to be. Top four places... But I just can't see it the way it is at the moment. So that's it. No comment really with Valentino. Wish him well. No, I think I think that's that's fair because we have discussed him at quite some length. But he was also having to bat away rumours, of course, uh, for his VR forty six team next year about Pedro Acosta, whether you know this superstar might be coming in, and and he said no, no, absolutely not. And he, I thought it was quite interesting that he said, although he clearly highly rates Acosta, he, he, they're probably going to go with someone from his academy, most likely. But that's quite encouraging that, you know, he's trusting in in the people that he's found and he's developing and not just seeing this wonder kid um, who's obviously very good. Well, he's very good. And he's also in Akiyo's stable at the end of the day at KTM. So there's no... no, uh, Well, money talks, right? Valentino might be quite wealthy, but he's going to need to use a fair bit of his wealth (laughs) if he's going to pinch someone, a 16-year-old, off of the the KTM pipeline. And that just builds into what I was saying a bit earlier on. I mean, that's that's the, the KTM pipe. They've got this long list of super talent actually what's going to happen at ktm and i think it was crash again that wrote i think it's peter you must have written about it the fact of the matter is is they're going to end up with too many riders not enough places too many good riders and not <laughs> exactly yeah their problem is going to be how do they keep hold of them because they're going to have a lot of riders hitting the ceiling at the top of moto two and going you know give us give us more major gp seats as we know bind has been signed up for a few more years Oliveira is there officially until the end of next year but it sounds like unofficially there are options in the contract and you can't imagine that ktm are going to let Oliveira go the way that his form is at the moment so you know the factory team might be set for the next two or three years that means all the pressure will be on the tectoir seats um as we know remy gardner's got one of those for next year it looks like a straight fight between petrucci and lacona for the next one, but they might find themselves in that same fight for their seats at the end of next year because there's always these riders coming up. Good thing from a team point of view. Bloody lousy one from a rider's point of view. Absolute nightmare. You can't sleep when that kind of thing's going on. Employment, very difficult subject. <laughs> that that must be a real thing to battle with because when you've got that clear route, but then there's so many highly rated people in in that program. It, you know, I suppose there's so many pros that come with being in it. Is it almost worth? It's worth it, isn't it? Obviously, to be in that pipeline. But at the same time, is it? Should one of them make a jump for it and 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 swap? Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you're betting, you've, you've, you're putting a bet on futures. It's a, it's a situation where you know going to KTM might not seem like a good idea a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It looks pretty good now. Um, look at Polis Bargro going across to Honda. You know, can he make that bike ride? I have to say that I thought Polis Bargro would have the kind of style that might just liven that um, Honda up, but it's just not worked with how things have moved on in 2021. Um, you know, somebody like Petrucci, I think Petrucci pretty much is, is almost, 
you know, flying the white flag, isn't he, with um, with his position? I mean, he's he's come the hard way into MotoGP via Superstock originally, and and it's he says things along the lines of I can't quote because I can't remember enough. I've been around the goldfish bowl once today already, so it's um it's one in ones where he said something along the lines of I've had a great great career already. You know, if it ended tomorrow, I'd be happy with it. Um, well, no rider says that. No it sounds quite defeatist there. Well, it does a little bit. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But, I mean, he's a genuinely honest, nice guy at the end of the day. A bit like Zarco when he said, well, look, you know, we're not getting along with KTM at the moment. Uh, I'll give you notice that I'm going to pack it in. And then KTM quite ruthlessly cut him from the team straight yeah. away. Um, this is not for this is not for gentle people, motorcycle racing. Everyone is cutthroat. No. They're hiding weapons. Be careful. <laughs> Right. Well, um, that was uh, some of the uh, the points I wanted to just sort of touch on from testing. And of course, one thing we really do need to pick up on, because before we recorded or after we had recorded actually our last show, the big talking point from uh, Catalonia was obviously Fabio Quartararo and this mysterious suit unbuckling. Um, he has since said post our show last week, I should have been black fad black flag of course we saw him receive a three second penalty during the race for not losing enough time for going off the track and Keith you said during our show that that should be it really he shouldn't receive a further penalty uh post race for the uh leathers incident but in fact they did give him a further three second penalty for the incident and he finished sixth overall in the end but my question to you guys is what does this mean I suppose going forward for for safety and penalties because he should I think Keith you said this last time he should count himself lucky actually he was still able to pick up points so surely now instead of you know he could have just been black flag no points and that you know could prove costly come the end of the year when it comes to the championship surely now that kind of sets a precedent that if you break blatant safety rules you're still going to be allowed to finish at the end of the day he's a rider he didn't do anything I wouldn't have expected him to do. You know, like he did exactly what what just about every rider would have done. Okay, he's let us come out. <laughs> he's got a race to try and win. He's not. He's going to try and zip him up. He's going to try and do everything he can there and then. But he ain't going to stop. That's a fact. I still think that the, the stewards dropped the ball. I think that their their line of decision making took too long to make a decision over what they should have done with him. Yes, he got the penalty for not losing enough by going off the track. Fair enough, that's standard. That's what he should have got. He, he didn't lose a second. He lost 0.7 or something um, by going off the track, trying to zip himself up. He'd have been better off taking a little bit more time over getting the thing zipped up and getting on with it. Um, but the fact is, he got that penalty. That was right. Um, but my argument was that you can't retrospectively, when, you should, when you've already made a mess of it in the first place because you didn't put the black flag out at him or the meatball flag, you've got to put the the orange and black flag out or something, that's when someone's hanging off your bike. It's a safety thing. You've got to pull to one side and sort it out before you can continue. That probably could have been used. I haven't read the rule book, Peter, but uh, again, um, but it could have been used to to get him to one side to sort out whatever the problem was or not. But he should have been black flag. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in the paddock that disagrees with the fact that it's not that he got lucky because, you know, he could have, it could have been a disaster. If he'd fallen... At anything over, you know, however many mile an hour and slid up the road and his leathers picked up and pulled his leathers off of him. The, the consequences are horrendous. It's just horrendous. Yeah, Alpine Stars have, have done an investigation on the suit. There was nothing wrong with the suit. Um, I understand that that his breast chest protector had moved and he was trying to, to get it back in position. Um, well, as soon as you unzip 
anything at that kind of speed, <laughs> it's going to pop straight open. I mean, I think I said to you last time out, those suits are made for airbags, so therefore zips do not burst. It's not like something you got on your cushions that you sat on at home. You know, it's a it's a it's a tough old thing that that that, that can take an airbag going pop inside of it, and all the other stresses and strains that motorcycle racers go through when they when they crash a motorbike. So that that was never something that I considered as being an option, but. He should have got a black flag. I don't think there's anybody that disagrees with that. It sounds like he doesn't disagree with it now either. Um, uh, the stewards dropped the ball. They weren't fast enough in their decision-making. Now, I'm sure they're going to be looking at that. Now, I think we spoke last time. Freddie Spencer, I spoke to Freddie Spencer um, last week. Um, and I think Freddie is um, he's quite keen to come and talk with us um, during the during the summer break. Now, we'll try and jack that up, obviously, to make sure that that happens. But... Freddie is a very intelligent, very analytical, smart fella. He's not an idiot. I mean, I, I get really annoyed when people diss Freddie Spencer. He's a world champion um, on two classes in one year. You know, the guy is a bit special. He's the first alien ever out of all the aliens as we, we come to know some of the top riders. Um, he makes decisions, analytical decisions, based on the facts I'd like to know where the facts were regarding that black flag, why they dilly-dallied about. Give him a, a, a time penalty after the event. That's that's kind of driven, I think, by the criticism that was around the paddock. How many hours was it after the event? Four hours or something, Pete. Um, yes, yeah, 6 p.m., I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hang on a second. It's just... And, and okay, you know, if I, if I was Scott Arara, I'd be quite happy to still finish sixth because you weren't going to finish at all with a black flag. So at the end of the day, he got out of it without, he got out of it unscathed and he got decent points still. He might've been, he pushed back a bit. I think he let himself down a little bit when he pushed back on it. He should have kept his mouth shut and let Twitter do its thing because um, it would have done in his favour. Um, but he pushed back a little bit. He's since been really, really funny, hasn't he? There's pictures of him, you know, with in his underwear on the bike, you know, with this, this year's, this week's safety kit on. Uh, and there have been various other people that have, have sort of gone off on that theme as well, which is brilliant because it's a great sense of humour. He has a great sense of humour, but probably the only criticism I've got of Cotteraro in the situation was he, he, he shouldn't have pushed back. As you're saying, Harry, I think the, the question now is this three-second penalty because it opens up. If it happens again, a rider thinks, well, do I need to pull over and zip up the leathers, which will cost me, what, 10 seconds maybe? Or, no, I'll just keep going, get three seconds at the end of the race. So I think they'll have to kind of clarify what will be the punishment in future, that, that yes, this will be an instant black flag if it happens again, or, you know, what exactly the procedure will be. And, and, and you know, obviously make sure, as Keith says, this delay doesn't happen again. That, that was the bit that, that none of us really understand. But as Keith was saying in the previous podcast, you don't get an explanation of why a decision is made. You just get the decision. So all we know is that, 6 p.m. after the race, the punishment that we talked about, that breach of the rules that you have to have your leathers done up correctly. That was the rule, as, as we thought, pretty obvious, really, that that's what he breached and he got a three second penalty for it. But, you know, that doesn't really solve the issue, does it? No. I'd want to know why it took so long and what the thinking was behind it. Why, why did it? Why was there such a delay on, on a decision? I mean, it was clear to everybody. I mean, just about every commentator that I've heard in every different language <laughs> said it should have been a black flag. When you speak retrospectively to riders, team members, black flag, everybody's thinking the same. There's very few with dissent. There's a few people that say, 
you know, you, you, again, if, if we're, we're talking Twitter and, and full respect to everybody for taking part, hopefully you'll take part in this conversation and let us know what you think about it as punters back at home, which is always important as well. But the, the fact of the matter is most of the people in the know, if we're talking a safety issue here, it's an instant decision. I'll tell you a guy that we can also get on here. Um, and and he's, 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 sort of, he's not said yes yet, but he's, he seems pretty positive about it. <laughs> Stuart Higgs. Stuart Higgs is race director of BSB. Now, I might be preempting a, a conversation here, but I, I would bet you money that Iggsy would have had that black flag out in, in a heartbeat the second he saw that open and, he, and the, the next camera. And the thing is as well, they've got all the information they need because they've got access to all the replays of the onboard. The onboard that was facing Quattararo, they can see exactly what he was doing and why the thing went awry, why, why we got to the situation. The onboard camera's facing him. Not to mention all the other cameras that are around the racetrack. I mean, the, the stewards have got every angle covered, and they've got that instant replay situation available to them as well. Which, and if they hadn't, for some reason, got that available to them, why hadn't they got? There's so many questions that you can ask about this one incident: why they weren't able to react as quickly as they should have done and correctly, as the majority seems to think. I think it's hard to disagree, isn't it? But what we will do is we will absolutely make that show happen in the summer break, hopefully, with these guys, and we can properly chat about it. I tell you what, we need Pete, uh, Pete Higgs, <laughs> Stuart Higgs, and, and Freddie Spencer together. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Yes, Stuart and Freddie together on the show in the summer. Get your questions in and we'll we'll have a big old discussion and debate about it and see what they have to say. Because um, I think that would really not just clear up a few things, but this is always such a... The stewarding and, and penalties is always such an issue, you know, with every kind of motorsport. So it's good just to hear from, you know, the people who make those decisions. So we will absolutely... Uh, get that to you uh, when we can ideally in the summer break um, now before we move on to um, our uh, proper preview of this weekend just got a couple of questions in from uh, some of our lovely listeners to chuck at you two uh, and see what you make of it from uh, sort of shooting off from what we spoke about last week so we're going on a slight tangent here but uh, Sabre has said um, now I realize MotoGP is basically a European market and I know there have been some races in the US but it it just annoys me because being from Canada sadly I'll probably never get to see my favorite riders live that being said though on maybe MotoGP coming to Canada a race in Toronto would be awesome and it would sell out instantly I know I would get my tickets what do we think about a race in Canada well I mean it's a again it's a Dorna thing isn't it um we need to get Carlos Espeleta, the young Espeleta, on the show, who is not only good-looking, um, he's fantastic, he's uh, feisty when it comes to a conversation. It'd be a very interesting conversation if we could get Carlos on here as well. But um, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a promoter's thing, isn't it? There's only so many weekends in a year. I mean, already people are saying that, that you're going to get burnout within the teams with the, with the Grand Prix we've got now. Anybody that's not travelled the, 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 the circus, if you like, uh, it is bloody hard work. I mean, it is really, really, really hard graft for these guys. They are, you know, and if you've got injuries to get over as well, then then that too leads into a championship um, denying situation, if you like, in that, that getting over an injury, you know, takes a week or two. If you've got no breaks, then you're not going to be able to, yeah. You know, and we say it quite often, don't we? Two thirds of the way through the season, just about everyone on the grid is carrying an injury of some sort or the other. You know, one that most of us would find quite debilitating back at home. But, of course, these guys are riding through it um, because they've all taken a clattering at some stage. I think 20 Grand Prix for me was always the outer limit. I always thought 20 GPs was where we needed to be. 
looking realistically at marketplaces, which is where Dorna and obviously most of the manufacturers do as well, the Asian continent is very important to them from a point of view of motorcycle sales and so on and so forth. I mean, anybody who lives in Asia, as both Pete and I do, um, then you, you realise how many motorcycles there are outside your front door. Um, it's a massive market and the money at the moment is out that way as well. The mar- the marketplaces, the money is out there as well. It, Canada, it's a shame. I mean, the Duhamels and, and so on and so forth. I and mean, if you go back far enough, there were some brilliant um, bike races from, from Canada. But I can't see it. I can't see something happening out that way at the moment. I mean, America really is is a poor market for MotoGP. It's, it's, it's touch and go all the time, isn't it? We, I mean, we're in Texas now, but nobody seems to be able to make any money out of it. I mean, Cota doesn't make any real money out of the GP. Indy never really made a, a decent money out of it. Laguna, which is the place that would be my absolute default for the Grand Prix, won't spend any money. It's a conservation area or whatever it is. There's a whole load of local authoritarian sort of maneuvers to not improve the, the track um, so you can have the decent runoffs that you need to make it work. Um, so we're a bit screwed for the for the North American sort of um, situation, really, aren't we? Pete, can you provide any hope for dear old Sabre who just wants a race in her hometown? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think in an ideal world that MotoGP would love more races in, in North America, but for exactly the reasons that Keith's saying, you know, so many things have to be in place, not least, you know, a world-class perfectly safe circuit you need the money you need the audience you need a place on the calendar you know we've seen indonesia is is probably the biggest motor gp market in the world and look at how difficult it's been to try and get it looks like it should be in the next year or two but it's taken so much work to get a race in motor gp's biggest market so you can imagine that the effort that it requires in other areas um but but yeah of course i mean I think MotoGP, people complain because, you know, there's, there's lots of races in Spain, but the races all have lots of, lots of fans. The tracks are all of, of top standard. So it's a difficult one, isn't it? But, and there's only so many weekends in the year. Of course, what's been happening is that we've been chopping off pre-season tests and having an extra race, is that, you know, to try and compromise on, on the travel issues that, that Keith was talking about. But we're getting to that stage where, you know, how few tests can we have before you start a season so they're just running out of room and every race will really be fighting for its place on the calendar but who knows in this post-covid world maybe some events will drop away and that will leave room for for new ones to come in Mm. okay well um saber thanks for sending that question in short answer is no it's not happening Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but we love you we, but thank you for sending that in. Keep up the great work. We appreciate it. Thank you. We've got another one, though, from Malcolm, um, who has said, great show. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, but why, oh, why is it? And this is picking up from our conversation last week over Moto2 and Moto3 and GP, but sort of the lack of, lack of um, Brits coming through, especially, you know, in, in the further juniors. Why, oh, why is it that the Brits in all classes are the nearly men? It's harsh, but so frustrating. Look at World Superbikes. What is it? Eight riders of uh, British, Jonathan Ray, Scott Redding, to name but two, always at the front end of the race. Yet in MotoGP, there are none. Now, even Cal Crutchlow, who granted one a race or two, was a nearly man. Why? There is loads of talent in the UK, or isn't there? That's from Malcolm. Well, there is loads of talent. I noticed you let me get for that one, Peter. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you go ahead, Keith. I'll drink from the poison chalice. Shall I? <laughs> there is a lot of talent in the UK, but not of the standard that we are seeing in the Spanish series and so on. I think that, that, that 
it's not like they've got a head start on us. It's just that they started a long time ago and their pipeline of talent is huge. And you just touched on it a moment ago when you said that they have got, you know, world-class tracks. How many world-class tracks have they got? They've got four or five homologated Grand Prix tracks that are ready to go. You can run a championship around there. Again, if we stick with Stuart Higgs and MSVR, for instance, you know, MSVR over here in the UK, you know, you know, you can't, it's Cattle Park is not up to Grand Prix standard. Um, whether that you view that as right or wrong, if you're Stuart Higgs or a punter that loves Cattle Park, and I love Cattle Park, by the way, um, you know, it's not a Grand Prix standard. Alton Park, another great racetrack, not a Grand Prix standard. They keep sticking chicanes in to make bits of it safer. You know, we do have great talent here. We don't have the weather. We don't quite have the tracks, even though we've got great tracks. Um, we certainly don't have the money. Um, riders tend to be a little older when they start to mature. Cal Crutch, though, seeing him as a 16-year-old on a, on a super sport bike around Cadwell Park, by the way. I remember commentating on him. He was clearly going somewhere um, to hospital by the look of it most of the time when you watched him. Um, but he never did because that's the skill of somebody that's good. They look like they're going to go completely wrong, but they're doing something on a motorbike that you perhaps don't see every day. And Cal was one of those. Eugene Laverty was another one. Tom Sykes. There was a whole group at that time that were really, really, really good, good runners. And slowly but surely, it was only Cal that, that managed to make it work. Um, I think we do have the talent. What we don't have is the money to keep it going. To the, the investment. Remy Gardner, you touched on him. I'm sorry to dart about a bit here because it's a really difficult subject to, to get a handle on. Remy Gardner, would you have said Remy Gardner was going to be a MotoGP rider from the beginning of his career in MotoGP, in Moto3? Probably not. You know, but Wayne bridged the gap. Where those lean periods came, Wayne funded that bit in the middle. And that's his dad, by the way, anybody that's been living a, on a different planet. <laughs> Wayne Garner, the man in the picture, usually behind Peter's head. Um, <laughs> you know, although that's not a great pose from him, is it really? <laughs> um, you know, Wayne filled the gap. And of course, you know, Bradley Smith, Alan Smith, his dad, perhaps filled the gap a little bit when, when Brad was in Spain. You know, he funded, you know, people have to fund these things. If you're going to go, if you're going to seriously look at a ladder into MotoGP at the moment, you've probably got to still go via Spain. You've still got to be in the CEV. You've still got to be in the Junior World Championship. You've got to be in the Red Bull Rookies. We've had riders in the Rookies as well. You know, there's the, the, the Talent Cup series. Well, unfortunately, the, the British Talent Cup didn't really work quite the way that it was expected to. And the reason why it didn't work, in my own opinion, was because we didn't have the depth of talent here. We were looking for youngsters from motocross, from, from mini moto, from all these other disciplines, and to chuck them into something like the British Talent Cup and expect them to perform immediately to the level that they were going to have to to start challenging the other Talent Cup series around the, the world, the Asia Talent Cups the, the, and so on, it was too big a step. And and I think that's the problem we have. It's it's not able to quite bridge the gap from being a good British national runner into a, a great international runner. There's not the, the funding to move those talents on and through. You know, Rory Skinner was a, was a pretty good example to me. Rory Skinner, I would have put Rory Skinner in the same position as Remy Gardner. But Rory Skinner, although his family, you know, looked after him really, really well, his dad, his mum and dad, they're brilliant the way they, they brought Rory on, but needed tons more funding. You know, and, and I think that that was a situation as well. And plus, you know, Remy, Luca and Wayne weren't in Australia. They were living in Spain. 
you know, they actually lived in Spain. It's a, and the other son, apparently, Luca, was, was, you know, apart from the mentality side of things, was supposed to be faster than Remy back in the day, you know, and, and, and Luca went off and did his thing. And uh, Remy, of course, is now going to be a, a fully bona fide bloody MotoGP rider next year. I'm rambling on because I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> Malcolm, um, well, there is no answer to that. Uh, there, isn't. Hope... <laughs> there is no answer. It's, it's a, a, as you say, Keith, uh, very well. It's an accumulation of so many different factors, isn't it? But thank you, uh, Malcolm and Sabre, for sending in those questions. Uh, keep them coming for next week as well. And we'll ask uh, some to the guys. Now, it is time. It's been a while. Uh, but Keith, get out the trap map if you've uh, still got it. Um, it is time to have a look through uh, for this weekend because we're back in the Saxon ring um, in Germany for the next round. Let's get your insider's guide then, Keith and Pete, please. What's uh, what's there to look out for? Obviously, uh, we discussed it at the very start of the show. The king is really of the ring, Mark Marquez. Well, he is, and it'll be interesting to see if he can do that again. But for me, first of all, I, I think what I'm going to have to start off with is, is a massive, on behalf of everyone at Crash, because we talked about it before we came on air, Sylvain Gintoli. We've got to talk about the Suzuki test rider, who for the first time, first 24-hour race he's ever done, you know, on the SE, the, the Suzuki endurance racing team bike, won the, the, the Le Mans 24 hours, going around the Bucati circuit for 24 hours. Can you imagine? He must, if he, don't, if he hasn't turned to cheese, he'll certainly smell of it. Uh, round and round and round and round and round. But Sylvain Gintoli, absolutely brilliantly. Um, test rider. Yeah, do you know what, Pete? I think I, was, I had this conversation actually this morning with Julian Ryder, of all of all people, because um, Jules and I talk a lot just about every other day over the fence. You know, we're like a couple of old washerwomen um, talking about various things. And when it comes to endurance, Julian is embedded in endurance. And I said to him, you know why Sylvain is so bloody good at, um, at, at that particular length of race? is because he's a test rider now. Round and round and round, hitting your marks all the time, trying the little tiny differences, bits and pieces. Sylvain's geared for it. You know, he's, he's got that kind of mentality now, having, having been such a good test rider. And the reason why I slipped that in there as well, congratulations to the SART team, of course, and Sylvain and the rest of the, uh, the team as well. But it was because Suzuki, I think that Saxon Ring is going to be one that suits them. I think we're going to be in a situation yeah. where the Suzuki could be quite an interesting tool around there. It's tight, it's twisty, not the safest of tracks on the calendar, I've got to say. Saxon Ring turns four or five up there. There's The barriers are all a bit close. I remember seeing, I think it was it was one of the Espargo brothers. In fact, it might have been both of them one weekend that went in at four and, um, and came out of it fairly well clattered. Um, and you've got that sort of, was it between 25 and 30 seconds? I can't remember exactly what it is now because it's off the top of my head where you're doing the left turn for, for sort of a third of the track before you need to turn right and drop off the edge of the earth into the waterfall as it's been affectionately named when it was raining there because it looked like a waterfall. Um, you just drop straight off of it. That's the first time you ask for any grip from the front end of your bike. Um, Marquez has crashed there. Many others have crashed there as soon as you ask for the right-hand side. So... If I was going to stand somewhere that I wanted to scare myself, it would be at the back of the pits where you can actually look at the waterfall. Because the second they go, you're waiting for the weight to go over the front just to get the grip on the front end. You want weight on the front end. If you've got, if you've got, if you've, if you've not come off the throttle, you've got too much tapped in, whoosh, exit stage left. Um, so that's turn 11, one of my favourites, where you drop down the hill, 
And you drop down effectively to what is the television compound, the next left-hander at the bottom there, which is a great outbreaking manoeuvre, right at the very bottom of the track. Um, I mentioned Julian Ryder. A couple of amusing stories in a moment, which you'll hate me for when he listens to this, because he does listen. Um, the television compound, as I say, is right at the bottom of the hill, right at the very bottom. And as he steps up through the grass and everything, it's, a, it's like some kind of a, I don't know, a, a Mick Doohan, you know, endurance course. You know, you, you've got to tough it out as you grunt up this hill. Most people in television, they're not very fit. So they're all down the bottom of the hill. They don't come back up all day. <laughs> they're there. They're, their lunch is all taken down to them at the bottom of the hill. But me and Jules one day, I said, I've got a scooter, Jules, because they never used to let us have scooter. All the other team, or everyone else used to clear off on the scooters. But I'd got a TV scooter one day, so I've got Jules on the back. And there's a hairpin up from the television compound where you've got to cut back and then up the next hill. And this scooter had got about as – it couldn't pull a cock off a chocolate mouse. It was so slow, honestly. So I had to really gas this thing and tip it on its side. And as I tipped it on its side, Jules smacking me on the back because he thought I was being leery, thinking I was being a bit of a hooligan. And, of course, I lost all momentum. So then I had to turn it around and explain to him what we were doing. But even though he was scared, he'd rather still come up on the back of the scooter, <laughs> break the thing through the corner, and just about made it to the top of the hill. It's a logistical nightmare when you're working in the in, – um, the media because there's two paddocks split apart everything is jammed into this very small area you've got to walk miles every single day you know between the two paddocks it's it's not an easy place to work from but from a from a spectator's point of view and from a uh, from a regional point of view i mean again pete i'm sure you the history of that region there's so much motorcycle history that's gone on in that eastern germany as as it would have been um it's, it's it's a bucket list track for me. It's a, it's in the lines of Bruno, you know those kind of. And of course, if it's a cooking weekend, because it's sort of landlocked where it, where it is, that that central landmass seems to pick up the heat as well. So you could have a if it's a bit like it is in the UK at the moment, it's going to be scorching in the Saxon ring. Exactly what you're saying, Keith. Do you think Saxon ring? You think tight, twisty. You know, a bit of a go kart track the first bit, then that sort of triangle at the end. Um, you know, you wouldn't want every race on the calendar like it, but in a world championship, you want something different, don't you? And it, it definitely has its place. Normally, you would have loads of fans there, one of the biggest, you know, crowd attendants of the year. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen this weekend, obviously. But it's 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 a unique event, as you say, all round. The you know the areas surrounding it, the countryside, the places you stay, great beer. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's definitely a, a event to go to. And uh, as you say, even if not not the easiest one to cover, as you say. The split paddock, the, the uphills, the you know, especially if it's raining, the tunnel under the track gets flooded a bit, and you've got to sort of traipse your way back and forth. But it's um, you know, the thing that surprised me, I remember, as you say, the waterfall corner is one of those that just wow takes your breath away when you stand there and watch it. And then the front straight is is actually if you just turn around a bit, you can almost see it. That's how sort of compressed the whole track is when you wow. when you're used to going to these much bigger, you know, these newer tracks, the, the Spangs, Guitars, Coters, you know, the, these vast complexes. This is a much more tight, compact one, and uh, yeah, it's certainly unique. And you know, we haven't been there since 2019, so it's 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 especially open as far as what's going to happen this weekend. Funny you should say that about the track being compressed. Of course it is. It's a bit like the indie track at uh, Brands Hatch, isn't it, where the, 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 the kidney shape at the bottom meets the um, the start and finish straight. You only have to run from one side of the pits to the other to, to watch both uh, both sides of it. I love the place. I mean, I think that the atmosphere, like you say, beer, yeah, that goes without saying. But um, 
you know, even the drive in, although the police have got a little bit sharper over the years, I think I've got them in my ticket collection here on the side <laughs> of my desk. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, you sold it to me. I've never been, but I mean, as soon as we're allowed, I'm there. Well, to be fair, you sell every track, to be fair. But it's good that we are going to get some fans, obviously not for Saxon, but we are going to get some fans in, in the next few races, aren't we? Particularly in Austria, which is going to be great. Um, so it's nice to see fans come back in to watch MotoGP. We've had some, obviously, in Spain as well. So uh, good to see that happening. Hopefully it happens more and more each race. But before we delve into the dangerous world of predictions, let's have a look at uh, Moto3 and Moto2 just coming into this weekend. Uh, Moto3, I read a really good article um, earlier, uh, which was sort of suggesting that, you know, Pedro Acosta, obviously we, the wonder kid, as it's sort of being labelled this early part of the season, but the last couple of races hasn't really been on the podium. And I guess he still looked very strong, but there are some others that are gunning for him and are going to want to make sure they stay in front of him Garcia in particular looking very strong. Massey is going to be out for revenge after being knocked off the podium last time out due to track limits. Um, And importantly, I'm imagining that experience counts quite a lot at the Saxon ring. Yeah, but I mean, uh, Acosta, he seems to have got that. He's got a very mature head on his shoulders. I think that it's it's, sometimes seasons turn, they, they split. You know, he's had a massively fast run. He's looked really, really you know, superb. Now he's got to settle back into that a little bit. I think that, you know, you can go to the, you're talking about British talent, Danny Kent syndrome, world champion. You know, he couldn't win a race in his second half of the season. He'd, he'd got that world championship done in the first half. Um, and, and he did everything almost to give the championship away by the end of the season. Um, and, and the same can happen with the Costa. I mean, it's, it, these tracks are tough. And then, of course, there is the possibility of picking up an injury. I said it earlier. These guys all hide their weapons. They're, they're you know, they're, this is, these are not easy classes. They are absolutely, everyone is ruthless as hell and is doing the best they can possibly do. And I mean, with the, with the crew chiefs and mechanics and psychologists and people that have been trying to get them into that next position of, of attack, uh, it's, it's fascinating and exciting all, all under the same track. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, if you can find me a better sport than motorcycle racing on all the elements that go into sport, um, I think you'd be fairly hard pressed. I think sometimes as former broadcaster, if you like, and, you know, written journalism as well, Pete, sorry to rope you in on this, but I think sometimes our job is to try and with our passion depict how it is behind the scenes in their heads. And as much, and I don't think there's ever been a perfect lap as far as that's concerned yet. I've, I've not come across the perfect article, the perfect broadcast where we've managed collectively to get that across um, you have to be there. You have to kind of live it and to try and explain it to people, to try and, you know, sometimes I look like I'm going over the top with, you know, the hairs are still on my, you know, I can have a conversation with you two, and the hairs are up on my arms and I'm all revved up and ready to go here because I'm feeling it just like, you know, an ex-competitor and that's decades ago. And, and sometimes I wonder whether we, we get it across good enough. Um, what do we need to do better, Pete? <laughs> it's such a difficult one isn't it i mean as far as versiana costa i think the motor three class especially it's almost like when you're when you're a title leader you're like you know you're in a you're in a dinghy and the sharks are just circling underneath waiting for you know the slightest drop of blood the slightest weakness and then they then they're on you and i think that they're as you're saying there harry that you know it's no disaster he hasn't had any major mistakes or anything like that but if you do start to show a bit of weakness in this class as a title leader 
the others are just on you. You know, there's no there's no one's holding back. No one's going to say, oh, well, you know, let's just let's just give them a bit more room than everyone else. You know, they'll just sort of engulf you and, and, and sort of eat you up. So I think Acosta won't want to keep, you know, he's going to want to get back on the podium, get back to the front to just sort of stamp that out sooner rather than later. That last bit is psychological. The last bit, the last, the last, the nth degree in any race, in any any sport at all, it's it's psychological. So the, the, yeah, what makes the difference between the guy at the front and the guy in midfield? Not very much. <laughs> Certainly, probably not not that much in the way of talent either. It's just that little extra bit of of what's going on up here, and that's why now, like I say, you know, dietitian, sports psychologists, all the people that you ever heard of. I know where you are, Pete. Motorcycles <laughs> <laughs> go by. <laughs> I'd say that was very apt to have as the background for this podcast, to be honest. <laughs> but it, it is something that, that, that you, you never even considered back in the old days. Dietitians and, and, and psychologists, you know, sports massage, all the rest of it that brings your body back quicker. Even hydration. You know, I, I remember getting in a row once with um, um, Scott Smart, of all people, over her hydration, because Scott, being the brain box that he is, understood everything about everything much better than I did. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a real it's a world that I think that to be a part of to understand all the elements within it is is our job to try and try and depict that. I think sometimes I'm not the, sure the, the human side of it is that it's that join between the human part and the technical part to give a. A bit of a, a story going back when I was a, an engineering student. This is more from your side, Harry, with the F1. But Pat Simmons came in and did a, did a guest lecture. And it was specifically about test test driving for, I think he was still at Benetton at those days, after Schumacher, I'm not quite that old. But uh, it was it was about, um, you know, that the, they were known as being really at the forefront of, of testing and, you know, the, the methods that they used to, to try and get everything exactly precise and you know, there was issues with it's such a hostile environment, an F1 car, you know, trying to deal with all of the, the signal interference and all this sort of stuff. So they designed their own software, which I think they call Wizard. And it had a little Wizard logo on his computer because they thought it was really clever. And, and, and he was demoing it and showing us this car going around Catalonia, actually. I think it was with Alex Wirtz was the test driver at the time. Anyway, he went, he said, and at the end of it, he said, look, we go to these extraordinary lengths. We try to iron out any kind of inconsistencies. We want to be exactly precise. We follow our program. But he said, you know what? At the end of the day, sometimes drivers just go quicker because they want to have lunch. And there you go. You know, that's the even in F1 and with all that technical level, you've got that human side that is always there. And with motorcycle racing, of course, it's exaggerated. And all of these issues that Keith just listed, all of these things ultimately are what make the difference between the winning and the losing. You can have a great new engine development in terms of the numbers or the or the aerodynamics. But if it doesn't feel good to the rider, it's not going to actually translate to success on the track. And that's that that sort of magical part that that I think keeps many of us interested. Mm. Well, at the end of the day, everyone just wants their lunch, don't they? Um, Moto2, <laughs> very briefly, before we uh, sort of round off the show this week. Uh, again, forgive me for sort of flogging a, a dead horse, perhaps, but um, we will will we keep seeing Red Bull KTM, you know, leading the way there, but also, you know, Sam Lowe's, DJ Antonio, you know, if they iron out some of their issues that they've had, they are right up there as well on their good days. Uh, and also, what of Marco Bazzetti as well, king of consistency, but yet to get that win. I think Sam did the right thing last time out. I mean, it, he won't be happy with where he finished, but the fact is he finished. Um, mm. and, and you need to build a little bit on, on where he was. You know, Catalonia, 
um, he had a good ride in Catalonia, not where he wanted to be, I'm sure. But but at the end of the day, he's now building Saxon Ring. I reckon he'll go well at the Saxon Ring, Sam. I think he's going to have a good weekend this weekend. He's um, he's had some quality rides early on in the year, so watch out for Sam Lowe's in uh, Moto Two. That's uh, where I'm going. Okay, Pete, what about you? I think Remy's done a good job in recent races of just containing Ralph Fernandez a little bit. And I think that, you know, because it, it, it was looking like he was in danger of the, the rookie coming in and, and just getting all that momentum. And Remy's done a really good job of just going, hang on a minute. I'm the guy that, that has the experience here and I'm going to sort of lead this fight. So I think Remy will be out to continue doing that, obviously, and sort of cement his position within the team. And, and just, you know, I'm the guy that's going to be bringing us the title. I think Vizeki, as you say, it's an important time of the year for him because he, he's going to want to move up to MotoGP next year. And to do that, you need to be winning. So, you know, this is the time when he needs to show that he can be that kind of winner and move up next year. You would assume his best chance would be on a VR46 seat. But, you know, there was interest from Aprilia last year. So that's that's not out of the question again this year. That's that's a seat alongside a Spargo that's yet to be decided. So there's a lot, lot up for grabs for, for different reasons for the guys at the front of Moto2. Mm. Well, very good then. I think that just about uh, does it for us, apart from our MotoGP predictions this weekend, uh, guys. Uh, so no one, we haven't improved on our points since uh, since Spain because no one predicted anything right in that round. Uh, so it is still Keith one, Pete one, Harry zero. Now, I, I feel bad if I go first again because I feel like maybe we should alternate it even though I am on zero points. So I'm going to suggest, Pete, you can have the first prediction this weekend. Well, I'll let you have that one. So go on. Who's your money on? Well, as we've been saying, this is not a top speed circuit. So that's the first thing. This should be a track where the guys that that don't have the speed on the straights, you know, they're not going to suffer as much. So with that in mind, and as Keith mentioned, you're looking at handling and you've got Suzuki's. You also think Yamaha. Now, of course, I think Quattararo is the obvious guy to choose. So as you put me first, I will choose him. But to be honest, also, I think Vinales or even Morbidelli, you know, Rossi is yet to find that last part that he needs. But any of those guys, Morbidelli suffered the most with top speed, right? So, you know, he's going to be fired up because he knows that, that this weekend his main disadvantage is not going to be there. But, um, yeah, I'll go, well, I'll go Quattararo because if you're going to give me first pick, it'd be silly not to. So. Fair you shout. talked yourself out of it, though, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd go a little bit further. Um, Keith, go on then. I think I may have a suspicion of who you might go with, but go for uh, it. Jaya Mir. Uh, I think Jaya Mir for me. I think he's he's due. Um, I think the Suzuki front end is fantastic. I think that he's a very positive front end. I mean, he's been out of turn it tight so many times underneath people. I just think that Suzuki. I mean, the, the unknown factor, of course, is tires. And you were saying earlier on, Pete, 2019, the last time we've been here. So at the end of the day, we don't quite know how the tire allocation is going to work um, for who and for what manufacturer is going to be able to get straight out the traps and, and dial that in. Uh, but I think Joao Mir, like I say, Suzuki, pretty much due for one. So I'm going to go with the world champ. That's left you a gap though, Harry. Oh, has it now? And I couldn't I couldn't go with bloody Vinales again. What is it with Vinales? <laughs> I, well, that's a big question. Because, you know, we discussed it in depth, didn't we, last time? But, well, maybe now that he's had one race under his belt in mind, because I was thinking Vinales, but actually... I, I'll tell you what, Vinales... I, I, I'd bet on Vinales just about every racetrack. It just depends on how he turns up. 
You can't. Well, this is the problem with our entire situation: is you cannot predict MotoGP. But I'm going to go for the man riding on a crest of a wave, and I'm going to go for Miguel Oliveira. I I know it's not perhaps the straightforward choice, but it wouldn't wasn't the straightforward choice last time. That's so okay. I'm going to go for Oliveira. So I'm going to lock that one in. So uh, it is Pete with Quartararo. <laughs> Damn you. Uh, Keith has gone for Joanne Mir, and I will go for Miguel Oliveira. So we shall come back this time next week and see who uh, either all, it's all the same, Neil Poire, or someone's made a move here. So uh, we'll find out. Let us know your predictions as well. Let us know at CrashNet and all the socials. Um, but Keith, Pete, huge thank you as always for joining me each week to discuss all things motorbikes. And thank you as well for joining us if you're watching us or listening or, uh, through uh, your podcast player. Do make sure you leave us a review or comment wherever you listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you're able to leave us a review, it really helps with the algorithm and things like that as well. And we love all the comments on YouTube. So thank you for getting in touch uh, to put your opinions across any questions as always shoot them in and i'll fire them at the guys uh, but in the meantime we'll be back next weekend uh, next weekend next week to review all the action uh, post saxon ring keep up to date in the meantime with all the latest on crash.net and we'll see you all next week flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.